Today is almost like uh, the first week of summer. Uh, I think when June hits, uh, it, it really does feel like a, a different season, and uh, it's exciting to look ahead. One of the themes uh, for the month of June uh, and, and on is really going to focus on the subject of how do we effectively advance the gospel? How do we take the message of Christ to our friends, our relatives, our associated neighbors? And, and so this summer, we're going to be focusing on that as our theme for the summer retreat. But really, this Sunday kind of marches or, or begins the march uh, to really think through uh, the process of sharing our faith. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter one, uh, 3, verses 1 to verse uh, 5. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Paul is writing uh, to the church in Thessalonica, and he says, Finally, brothers, pray for us, that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored, just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful. And he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that what you are doing, that you are doing and will continue to do, we command. We command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. Let's pray. Father God, thank you again for this morning. Uh, thank you for this beautiful day as we look into this summer months that we begin to refocus our our attention to the things that you've called us to do, and that's primarily, Lord, uh, to take and advance the gospel forward. Uh, I pray that you would uh, just remind us that the people around us are the people that you've called us to reach, whether that's our friends, whether that's our, our relatives, our associates that we work with, or our neighbors. Uh, help us to be equipped to do that, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Several years ago, uh, I was at a doctoral class uh, on the topic of preaching. And one of the subjects that we had to sort of bring in this topic was uh, we were given the assignment of selecting a story and giving an oral interpretation of that piece of literature. Uh, during the week, uh, each one had to sort of bring in a classic literature piece that they would orally interpret uh, for the class. And some of the books stood out more than others. So I thought, man, what would be an amazing, profound book that, that I can share with these doctoral students uh, from all realms of literature? And you think about whatever you can bring, uh, whether it's from the classics or whether it's from modern time. So I chose my story. I chose my book. And the title of my book was published in 1945. And here's a picture it's called The Carrot Seed. Has anybody ever read The Carrot Seed? Okay, let me tell you the story. I'm going to read the whole book for you right now. It'll take about 15 seconds. Here's how profound this is. And, and if you don't have a PhD, it may be a little bit hard to understand, but I hope you can bear with me. It's called by Ruth Krauss, and here's how the story goes. A little boy planted a carrot seed. His mother said, I'm afraid it won't come up. His father said, I'm afraid it won't come up. His big brother said it won't come up. Every day the little boy pulled up weeds around the seed and sprinkled the ground with water, but nothing came up, and nothing came up. 
Everyone kept saying it won't come up. But he still pulled the weeds around it every day and sprinkled the ground with water. Then one day, the carrot came up, just as a little boy had known it would. Here's the carrot. Pretty big carrot, isn't it? But this little boy story, and this is what I used as part of my uh, preaching course, was to illustrate a simple fact. And that fact is this. That when it comes to evangelism and sharing our faith, oftentimes the time that it takes to plant the seed and to bear fruit may be a long time. And there may be people in our lives that will tell us it's not going to come up, it's not going to bear fruit. But what we have to do is to remain faithful to the task at hand. (coughs) And the task at hand is to plant, water, and wait. So as we think about evangelism and sharing our faith, one of the things that I want to remind us is this, that there are times in our lives where we share that we may not bear a lot of fruit. And even though we don't bear fruit, doesn't mean that we shouldn't share, (coughs) that we need to continue to equip ourselves in sharing. So here are some things that we need to be aware of. I think a lot of the reasons that, that we don't share is because we sort of bought into the myth that... It's not for me. It's not, this is not what I'm paid to do. That as Christians, that is, that's what you paid professionals are doing. So let me give you five myths of sharing our faith. Number one, myth number one, it's not for me, it's for someone who's more gifted. Now here's the problem with that myth, is that all of us are called to share. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus' last command was simply this, go and make disciples. And he wasn't addressing to only people that were paid professionals. He was addressing to every single one of us. It is your responsibility. It is my responsibility. It's part of our corporate job description to live out our faith and to share it with people around us. It's not an option. It's a requirement. And oftentimes, it's easy for us to hand off that requirement to somebody who is, quote, unquote, an expert. But the reality is there are no experts that all of us have the responsibility of conveying the message of Christ. Here's myth number two. If a person doesn't make a decision, I have failed. I used to think that as a Christian, that the way I have to sort of evangelize is somebody has to pray a prayer or somebody has to walk the altar. But here's the thing that, that, that evangelism, it's not really necessarily about the decision, but it's the process, the journey in which that person comes to know Christ. And here's the curriculum. The curriculum is not necessarily kind of the end result or the test. The curriculum for us is the journey of displaying the gospel in our lives. And as Christians, sometimes we forget that. We think that if a person doesn't say that prayer, that they fail. But we forget that God has a series of people in, in that person's life. And we may not be the one bearing the fruit. We may be the one just simply watering the garden. The third myth is this. I don't know enough to share the gospel. I think for those of us who kind of grown up thinking that those who have like really studied the Bible, who can answer every apologetic question, are the ones who are the only ones who could do evangelism. And the reality is, for many of us, that's just an excuse. The greatest information that you need to know in sharing your faith, you already have. 
And that information has to do with what God has already done in your life. The thing that you convey is not necessarily all the apologetic questions that people ask. The thing that you convey is simply the radical transformation of your life. That once I was lost, but now I'm found. And that's all the information you need. See, the message of the gospel is not trying to convince somebody to buy something that they, that, that, that they shouldn't buy, but it's simply to display and to demonstrate what God has already done for us. Myth number four says, sharing my faith will naturally happen since I go to church. Well, the re- reality is that that myth is probably one of the most dangerous because we had just assumed that it's just going to be a natural progression of what we do as Christians. I was uh, on staff of a very large church in Fullerton, and my job was to be the outreach evangelism pastor. And I remember taking on that role. This church had five to 7,000 people, it was on the radio, and they had never had a pastor of outreach. So when I came on board, the first thing I did was to try to figure out how many people actually share their faith. And the natural assumption was that everybody was sharing their faith. But in reality, very few people were. They would go to church, hear the message, and go home. And there would be no interaction with people who are outside of the faith. Just because you go to a good church doesn't mean you're going to be sharing your faith. Oftentimes, uh, the, the, the healthier or the bigger the church, oftentimes we become sort of uh, kind of locked into that. and We become uh, uh, cloistered into our group. And so you have to be actively engaged. It has to be intentional. And the last myth is this, that there's only one way to do evangelism. Well, the reality is that there's not just one way. There are actually many ways. And the first and most important thing you can do to share your faith is what we call prayer evangelism. Here's a question I would like to ask. How many of you have somebody in your life right now that you're praying for? Somebody that doesn't know Jesus. Somebody that that you are actively seeking to share the gospel with, either through word or through your life. See, that's the first thing that a lot of times Christians fail is because we are so church with our church friends. According to studies, they say that after five years, most Christians lose all significant contact with unbelievers. And what happens to a lot of us is that we become part of a sort of a Christian country club where we just hang out with other Christians and we love it because they all talk the same way, they all act the same way. But God has called us to engage with the people around us and to begin praying and to be a presence in their life for the gospel. Well, as we focus on these sort of myths, uh, it comes to our passage today this morning that now Paul is writing to this group of Christians who have been suffering. They're the first church that Paul is writing to. It's a church in Thessalonica. The great thing about this church was that they had no uh, uh, understanding of, of the gospel before Paul came. And when Paul lands, he preaches the gospel. The Jews become Christians. Gentiles become Christians. And, and the whole city is turned upside down. And as a result of that, Paul gets kicked out of the city. He uh, goes to Corinth, and he writes the letter to the church in Thessalonica. That's what the first book is about. Paul is reminding them to stand firm, to remain faithful to the gospel. And so the second book, though, deals with a little bit of a different subject. Uh, These Christians who have now been Christians for a little little longer, they're beginning to wonder, has Jesus already come back? Because they're still being persecuted. And maybe we missed it. And as a result, these false teachers had come into the church misleading the people. And so Paul writes the second letter to encourage them to stand firmer in their faith. And as they're standing firm in their faith, he says... 
the reason that this evil continually exists is because the work of the church is to restrain evil. And God hasn't taken you away, and the man of, e uh, man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, hasn't been revealed. That's going to happen in the future. So Paul says to this church, stand firm. That's what Pastor Ethan talked about last week. Now we are in the very last chapter of 2 Thessalonians. And now Paul is reminding them on some practical things that they can do as they wait for the return of Christ. And the most practical thing we can do is to pray. And notice what his prayer is. There are three things I want to look at today, uh, the three prayers that Paul prays. And I believe that's sort of the prayer that we need to pray as we wait for Christ's return. Number one, we should pray for the rapid advancement of the gospel. We should pray for the rapid advancement of the gospel. And notice what he says in chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored, just as it is with you. You know, you think about what Paul is praying. Paul is saying, let's pray that the, that the message of Jesus would go viral that it would spread so rapidly that it would be contagious. And I love that prayer because I believe that was the prayer of Jesus. And that was the prayer of Paul. That we are to be contagious Christians. That we are to take the gospel to all people. You know, if you think about it from a historical, sociological perspective, think about the radical nature of the gospel spreading. Think about even just the radical nature of, of Christianity, how Jesus is different than any other religious leader. You think about uh, even uh, how Buddhism or how even Islam started. All these were people that, that were teachers, and they had followers, uh, who, and, and oftentimes they came from very wealthy families. Jesus is totally different. He doesn't come from a wealthy family. He actually comes from the poorest of the poor. They were so poor that the parents, when they took Jesus to be dedicated, could only offer two pigeons, which was the lowest form of offering. They were so poor that they had to trek all the way from their hometown in, in northern Galilee to all the way down to Bethlehem so they could give birth, and there was no even a place for them to give birth because they were so poor. Jesus was not born in a hotel. He was not born in a palace. Jesus was born in a, a manger, a, a place where animals are taken care of. But think about the radical nature of that. He grew up in this poor uh, place called Galilee, and he became, at the age of 30, he became this prophet. And notice who followed him. He started to attract a crowd. And his teaching was so radical that the Pharisees attacked him. He was so radical that the Roman government was at him. He was attracting crowds that were not just in, in, in a small number of elite. He was attracting cr crowds of thousands. And for three years, this itinerant preacher, this carpenter, this poor person from northern Galilee was able to transform what was happening in that city. And as a result, the Romans and the Jews felt threatened, so they took Jesus. And they put him on the cross. They crucified him to the worst death you could ever imagine. A criminal's death. The worst criminal's death. And they put him on the cross. Now, th would this happen to any person? This is the most radical story. Just from that perspective, it's radical. But then it gets even crazier. Not only does this teacher, prophet, who the people are following, not only does he claim to be a teacher, he actually claims not to be. He claims to be the son of God. 
So either Jesus was the craziest lunatic that ever existed, or he was who he said he was. And not only did he die, which all the prophets of all of history at some point died, he also claimed something even more radical. He claimed to have resurrected. Now, here's where the viral nature of Christianity takes place. And you think about it from a, just a historical, sociological uh, perspective. This faith, which was localized in the small nation of, of Israel, the, uh, a sect of Judaism, began to spread. Not only in Judaism. It wasn't a cultural religion. It wasn't a religion based upon heritage. It now began to spread to the Gentiles. And the gospel message of this Jesus begins to spread to Western Europe. Eventually, in 300 years, this message transforms a whole uh, civilization. And not only does it transform a civilization, you take into the next uh, 20 centuries or uh, 18 centuries into the future, it transforms nations like Africa, South America. The fastest growing faith in China is Christianity. All because of this one poor itinerant carpenter. It just is, is just radical in itself. And so there's a sociologist uh, named uh, Rodney Stark. He wrote a book a few years back, and he called it uh, The Rise of Christianity. And he asked the question, how did an obscure, marginal Jesus cult become the dominant religious force in Western world in a few centuries? It's just r remarkable. And he says this, that Christians became contagious. And I love what Paul is praying here. Paul is praying that the advancement of the gospel would be so contagious that all around the world, that one day everyone would hear the gospel. And you know, that prayer is being answered. As this morning was focused on the persecuted church, we're praying for, for Christians who are now in the most difficult places around the world. But do you know what the key factor in Christianity being contagious? Was not the message was not even their methodology. The primary way in which Christianity spread was through the, the individuals that embody the message of Jesus, that individuals were transformed by the gospel, and then they became contagious. I like what uh, one writer said this, that the primary means of growth was through the united and motivated efforts of growing number of Christian believers who invited their friends, relatives, and neighbors to share the good news. Christianity grew because these men and women decided to follow this prophet who changed their life. It wasn't just about uh, God just helping us have a new philosophy of life. He, uh, it was about God giving us a new life, a transformed life. We are now no longer broken. Now we are new creatures in Christ. And this radically changed the first century. And as a result, the gospel began to spread because people's lives were radically transformed. There was a, a writer in the first century named uh, Diognetus, and he wrote this. He said that, that there were four marks that Christians displayed that transformed Roman society. Number one, the, the Christianity brought this new message of social equality, that no matter who you were, that Christ elevated you. You could have been the poorest of the poor or the richest of the rich, and that Christ saw everyone equal, that every single person had dignity. There was no separation between Jew and Gentile, male or female. 
that Christ elevated all of human society. The second thing that these Christians did was that they had a, a, a sanctity of life, that they viewed life as being precious, and that meant all of life, from birth or pre-birth all the way to elderly, where the Roman society would take these human lives and throw them away, especially if you were deformed or unhealthy. They would literally kick them out of, uh, out of society or they would let them die. But the Christians instead took these people in. They created these things called hospitals in which they can care for the ill. They created these things called orphanages in which they could create a family unit where these kids didn't have any mother or father. They created a place in which the widows would be taken care of. Christianity elevated the sanctity of life. The third thing that Christians did was that they had a new sexual ethic. That it wasn't just about living your lives for your pleasure, but instead the marriage bond became a central part of the Christian faith. That when a man and a woman would commit themselves, they would create a family unit and that would be elevated in which in those days every man had a mistress and every person did whatever they pleased. Christianity kept the sanctity of marriage together. And lastly, Christianity promoted this radical concept of generosity that these first century Christians were not Christians who were just out for themselves, who wanted to build their own name and their career. That they, they Instead, whatever they had, the means that they had were to give to out to others, those who didn't have the means, that Christians were the ones who were extremely generous, and as a result, society changed. I believe that that's what God has called us to do. That really, one of the sad things about the, the label Christians in our day and age is oftentimes we have politicized it so much that when they view a Christian, they view a particular party. That's not what Christianity is about. What Christianity is about is following the Savior who transformed us, who changed us, and that's the message of the gospel. And so the first prayer is this. If you want to advance the gospel then the greatest testimony and witness that you have is your life. That our character, our life, is what displays to the world the reality of God. I like what one person said, I would rather see a sermon than to hear one any day. I would rather one should walk with me than merely show the way. Their eyes are better people and more willing than the ear. Fine counsel is confusing, but examples are always clear. The best of preachers are men who love their creeds, uh, for to see the good in action is what everyone needs. It's living your life in a transformed way. I've said this before, that Christ is not, does not come, did not come to just fix your brokenness. Christ came to give you a new life, to transform your brokenness into something that is better than what it ever was. The th second thing that we should pray is this. Not only are we called to advance the gospel, we should pray, secondly, to be protected from the evil one. You know what the greatest opposition to the gospel is? It's not people. The greatest opposition to the gospel is not government. The greatest opposition is not persecution. The greatest opposition to the gospel is the one who hates the gospel. And that's the evil one. And so notice what he says in verse 2. And pray that we may be delivered from the wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith. In other words, you know, pray that God will protect us from, the, from those who are out to persecute us. But notice what he says in verse 3. But the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. 
The Bible reminds us that our enemy is not flesh and blood. Our enemy is not the Muslims. Our enemy is not Hindus or, or, or atheists or agnostic. Our enemy is the one that has deceived and caused blindness in all of society. It is Satan himself. So our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities that rule the earth, Ephesians chapter 6. And so our job is to be protected from the evil one. Because Satan would love to destroy the credibility of the gospel. You know, the way in which Satan destroys the credibility of the gospel is not persecution. Even though we pray for the persecuted church, persecution actually adds oil to the fire. It actually makes the church grow more. So in every culture and country where Christianity has been actively persecuted, Christianity seems to flourish. Even in places like China or Indonesia or places even in the Muslim world. One of the fastest uh, uh, countries where Christianity is growing is in Iran. So it's not the gospel being persecuted, but the greatest deterrent to the gospel are Christians who are led away by Satan himself. And it's the whole battle that we wage internally. And that's temptation. Temptation is a word that all of us uh, have experienced through experience. And if we defeat, are defeated by temptation, that's what ruins the credibility of the gospel. Temptation is like a mirage that offers a cool water in a hot desert sun, and yet when you get to it, it disappears. And that's what Satan loves to do. He loves to deceive us into thinking that if we do this, that our lives will be happier. Temptation is everywhere. I I saw a bumper sticker that said this, uh, lead me not into temptation. I can find it myself. I think for many of us, it's not... Temptation that, you know, uh, looking for temptation. Temptation comes to and looks for us. And so one of the prayers that Jesus prays for us, the, uh, the Lord's prayer is this. Lead me not into temptation and deliver me from the evil one. Because Jesus knew that Satan's main opposition are the people of God. So how, how, how are you dealing with Temptation. I think one of the things that God calls us to do is to keep our lives in such a way that we are to demonstrate the faithfulness of Christ in the way we are faithful to the gospel. You know, uh, in James chapter 1, verse 3, it is interesting uh, the imagery that he uses to talk about temptation. In uh, James chapter 1, verse 13, he says this, when tempted... No one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted by his own evil desires. He is dragged away and enticed. After that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin, it is full grown, gives birth to death. The imagery here is is, is pretty fascinating. It's the idea of something that is conceived then it grows into something and then eventually dies. The purpose of temptation is to bring death. The word that he uses, by the way, entice, is the idea of a fishing bait. So if you would imagine this boat and somebody's casting a bait, temptation is the bait. And it only becomes conceived when our desires latch on to that temptation. And so Satan's job is to simply entice. And here's one thing that we should never say, that Satan made me do it. 
Because Satan can't make us do anything. We should always say that Satan tempted me and I gave in. It is my desires. My desires that latched on to that. And when temptation and our desires conceive, it gives birth to death. It gives birth to sin. And so Satan's main opposition is that, to simply drag us away. And so what we need to pray for is protection. Pray that, the protect, that we would be protected from the evil one so that we would not lose our witness and testimony to the world around us. I think about all the ways in which the church can be discredited. And oftentimes the way we are discredited is by our own hypocrisy. Or even as Christians, we live our lives on Sunday as Christians, then Monday through Friday we live totally as non-Christians. That's a temptation, isn't it? That we are led away. And, and throughout the Bible, the Bible reminds us that Satan's main job in tempting us is to lead us away from God. But there is a third prayer. We should pray for spiritual direction of love and perseverance. I like what he says here in this uh, next verse. He says, we have confidence in the Lord that you are doing uh, and will continue to do the things we command. In other words, he was reminding them, keep on doing what you're doing. That is good. Instead of falling into temptation, do what is good. And then he says this, may the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and perseverance. There's two end goals for us as believers. The end goal is this, the love of God and to stand firm and persevere in our faith. I think that's all God calls us to do, to pursue love and to pursue perseverance. Because love is the end goal of our Christian life. The greatest testimony that we have to the world around us is not trying to convince them that God is right or Jesus is right. The greatest way in which we can share the witness of God is through the love of our lives. You know, I think sometimes as Christians, it's easy for us to sort of fall into the trap that, that we don't want to impose our faith to somebody. It's almost like saying we don't, you know, I mean, we don't want to offend anybody. And so uh, uh, this new uh, survey that came out uh, this past year on the generation, uh, uh, sort of the millennials, generation Y, one of the questions was, how many of you... Uh, uh, you think we should not share our faith. 50% of, of millennials say we shouldn't share our faith. And when you sort of unpack that, what they were against, it was not the sharing of our faith, but the way in which we have done it in the past, which is this sort of force the gospel down people's throat, evangelism. But the way in which we are to share is to demonstrate the love of God. You know, uh, sometimes non-believers have a better understanding of the importance of evangelism than even Christians. There was a, a video blog done a, many, a few years ago by a magic uh, act called Penn and Teller. And if you've ever seen them in, 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 on TV, they, they are, uh, especially Penn, he's very articulate, very smart guy. He's an avowed atheist. He's, he's an agnostic or maybe borderline. And he was mentioning in his blog an incident that took place after one of his shows. As he had performed in Vegas, you know, at the end, people come up to him to get their autograph and uh, to, you know, comment on the show. And he saw this one particular man who came up to him. And instead of wanting his autograph, he wanted to present him a gift. So he presented Penn a gift of the New Testament. And in the New Testament were written scriptures in the back that, that sort of 
talked about the gospel. It was, it was just the New Testament uh, with the book of Psalms. And he presented that to, to Penn. So he's talking about this incident as an atheist. And he said something profound. He said, this guy believed in this stuff so much that he was willing to give me a Bible and spend time. And he actually commended him. And, he, and he, then he challenges Christians. He says this. He says, Christians, if you believe in something, you should be wanting to share that with everybody. And he, go, and he gives the analogy. Imagine, he says, a truck was going off a cliff and it was about to fall into a cliff and everybody was going to die in that, in that you know, car. Wouldn't you be out on the, on the ledge warning that car not to fall off the cliff? And then he says this. How much do you have to hate somebody to not tell them that the bridge is down? And reminded me, wow, how much do you have to hate somebody not to share a message of eternity? And I think about that as Christians. We, we don't share. If we truly believe in what we believe, then everybody who does not have a relationship with Jesus Christ are ultimately going to go into off the cliff. How much do you have to hate somebody not to share them with the good news of Jesus? And that's what the message of Jesus is all about, that we share not to make somebody, we're not used car salesmen trying to convince somebody of something that is not true so, so that we can get our commission. We are people that have experienced the genuineness of the gospel. And if some of you here are in this room who are still wondering and questioning, the reason that Christians want to bring into church and the reason that they want to share the gospel is not so that they could get brownie points in heaven. We don't earn our salvation. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And the corollary to that is there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. That we are here to present to you a simple reality that this Jesus who is died and rose again, is not just a prophet, not just a teacher, but he is who he says he is. He is God in eternal flesh. And because he's God, he can transform us. He can give us a new message, a new life, a new hope. You know, the great message of the gospel is that love is the very nature and basis of God's character. For God is love. And if you think about the aspects of evangelism, message of evangelism is love, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But not only is love the message of the gospel, love is also the methodology of the gospel. You know, I think sometimes we forget that, that we generally do not convince people into the kingdom, but we love people into the kingdom. When somebody who is hurting is loved, when somebody who is broken is loved, when somebody who is unworthy is loved, that's when the gospel becomes real. There was a man who uh, had an incredible message uh, among the Muslims and, and among the Hindus of India. And his ministry to international students led scores of Hindus to Christ and scores of Muslims. And, and so somebody came up to him to interview him and said, what's your... The reason that you're so effective. And he said, each Sunday, he told them, he and his wife would host a dinner between 30 and 50 students. That's the key part of his strategy, he said. Food and fellowship. And as he shared this meal, he says, the food will break down some of the barriers. He goes, there's something about a meal that accelerates a friendship. 
So do you talk about Christ at these meetings, they asked. He goes, no, no, that's impossible to talk openly about Jesus. So how do you then see all these people come to know Jesus? And then he says this, I love them. He replied, until they ask me why. I love them until they could ask me why. While it's important for us as Christians to communicate the reality of God, oftentimes the reality of God has to be shown through the way in which we love. Sacrificially, with generosity, with pain and suffering. See, it's easy to love somebody that loves you back, isn't it? If somebody gives you a present, it's easy to give them back a present because it's reciprocal. That's how human nature works, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But the message of the gospel is radically different. It's not that we love God and God loves us and and there's this reciprocal relation. No, the Bible says this. God loved us. He demonstrated his love for us that while we were the worst of sinners, he died for us. Christ did not die for a friend. Christ died for an enemy. And the power of the Christian message is this, that we love despite the way we feel about each other. Whether we like each other or not, our enemy is not Muslims. Our enemy is not atheists. Our enemy is not Hindus or Buddhists or people with whatever religion they have. That's not our enemy. That's the people that God has called us to love. And here's the last thing. When we share our faith, we have to remember this, that God is already at work in that person's life. In other words, we think that we are the only means by which we're going to convince that person to know Jesus. That's absolutely wrong. God is already working in that person's life. We just become the conduit in which we are to demonstrate at that moment the reality of God. And sometimes all it is for is simply to pray, all it is for simply to invite, or all of it is simply to, to go to a ball game. Or to be at the place and to allow the Holy Spirit who is already at work. And so here's the thing. There's a supernatural world above us that we don't even know what God's doing. But that you remain faithful. When the Spirit of God prompts you to have a conversation, have a conversation. When the Spirit of God prompts you to be quiet, be quiet. Dr. Jerry Rood uh, is a professor of evangelism at Wheaton College. And... Uh, He's a C.S. Lewis expert, and Dr. Root uh, talked about the reality of Christ being alive in people's lives even before the gospel has been revealed. He tells us a great story. He says, when my fight was delayed, I met a woman at the Vienna airport. She was wearing a lanyard with a name tag, carrying a clipboard, and obviously taking a survey for the airport. And when she came to me, I asked her her name. Allegra, she replied. Allegra, are you from Vienna? She answered, no, I am from uh, Aust- southern Austria. With that answer came the permission to ask, so what brought you to Vienna? She said she was a student. This opened up more questions. So where did you go to school? What were you studying? And after 20 minutes or so, I knew a good deal about Allegra. I knew her mother abandoned the family to go to Canada with her lover. I learned her father's bitterness was toxic. I learned her brother attended the University of Vienna, but was estranged. When I expressed my sadness for what seemed to be a good deal of estrangement from the people closest to her, she said it was far worse than what she had shared. 
She told me that she had a boyfriend who went to study art in Florence for six months, and he asked her to wait for him, and she did. And her boyfriend returned the very day before I met Allegra, only to inform her that he had met somebody better in France, in Florence. He said, I knew where God was wooing her. And I know the deep felt need that Allegra was likely to hear the gospel. After 20 minutes, she had not asked me one question about the survey. And I said, I know she had a survey for me to fill, so I filled it out. And she wondered if I was a plant. Maybe put in by the airport official to see if she was doing her job. And I assured her it was nothing like that. But I had something to say to her once she finished her survey questions. She rushed through the surveys, airport survey, and then put down her pen and looked me in the eye. And she asked, what, what are you supposed to tell me? Knowing that Allegra felt abandoned and betrayed, I said to her, Allegra, the God of the universe knows you and loves you. He will never abandon you or forsake you. And I said it to her again, Allegra, God loves you. Sometimes it takes three times before words sink in, so I said it again. Allegra, God loves you. After the third time, she began to cry and to burst into sobs. And everyone at the gate was looking in our direction. And through those tears, Allegra blurted out, but I've done so many bad things in my life. And I responded, Allegra, God knows all about it. And that's why he sent Jesus to die for you on the cross. So that all your sins and to bring you to forgiveness and hope. I was explaining the gospel to ears that were already willing and a heart willing to receive. And he was there at the right moment that God had placed him to be so that the gospel could advance forward. Maybe you are where you are because the gospel can advance forward. Maybe you're in your workplace. Maybe you're a student. Maybe you, you are walking your dog and somebody comes along and you begin to have a conversation. Maybe all these things are the means by which God uses to advance the gospel in a viral way. What if everyone at Ambassador became contagious? So how do you become contagious? Well, you have to be near somebody who has that virus, right? So if you know somebody's sneezing like crazy, then you know you got to stay away. But here's the thing about contagion. If you don't, are not in proximity to that person, that virus cannot spread. And so here's the challenge for you this summer. Who is it in your life that you can be contagious to? To share the love of God in a way that's profoundly transformative. Because it's not about you sharing a message. It's about God working in their life to give them a new understanding of reality.